Catskill. Local news, culture, and NPR. Live from our studios, Radio Catskill Studios in Liberty, New York. This is the local edition. I'm your host, Jason Dole. Thank you so much for being here with me this evening. Coming up, we're going to get a live weekly update from the Times Union's Hudson Valley Bureau. Philip Pantuso joining us. We'll be talking about a contentious affordable housing project in Poughkeepsie. Latest news from New York's Cannabis Control Board. And more that's still to come. First up, the latest news out of Albany to get us started here on the local edition. This week does mark the 51st anniversary of the U.S. Supreme Court's abortion rights decision Roe versus Wade, which was overturned two years ago by the Supreme Court. In New York, Governor Kathy Hochul and Democrats in power in the state legislature vowed to continue steps to keep the procedure legal and safe in the state. Karen DeWitt has more. Hochul, speaking before Planned Parenthood groups gathered at the Capitol, says in New York, which legalized the right to abortion in 1970, three years before Roe, the anniversary of the landmark decision was a reason to celebrate. Now, she says, instead of mourning the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe in 2022, she's taking steps to strengthen the right to choose the procedure in New York, including offering a ballot amendment in the fall elections. That is why the right to an abortion will be enshrined forever after this November's election because it's on the ballot. The Equal Rights Amendment to the state's constitution would protect the rights of pregnant people as well as LGBTQ plus New Yorkers and people with disabilities. The amendment would also prevent the state from ever implementing a ban on abortion or stopping state Medicaid funding for the procedure. Democrats in New York hope the ballot amendment can raise voter turnout and could be a deciding factor in some competitive seats for Congress that Republicans gained in 2022. Hochul says she's urging other blue states to take similar steps and codify abortion rights into their state's constitutions. Because if they have the courage, individually, 50 states, to enshrine these rights, we can thwart what the Supreme Court is trying to do to our nation. We can set them backwards by showing that the power rests with the people and the power occurs at the ballot box. Hochul's actions are part of a larger strategy among Democrats across the nation. Both houses of the New York State Legislature passed a number of bills to strengthen abortion rights and to improve maternal health care and other reproductive care. The Senate sponsor of a bill to protect women's reproductive health privacy online, Liz Krueger, says New York has been coordinating with other states led by Democrats to pass the same measures. We're trying to do parallel laws throughout the country because when we get our country back and turn things around at the federal level, we would like to have exactly those same laws become the laws of this country. And frankly, we don't want to have 50 different sets of laws when these are national issues. So we're hoping we all 
in the states that haven't lost our minds actually passed these exact same laws. On the Senate floor, some Republicans who are in the minority in the legislature quietly voted against the measures that support abortion rights. But in what was perhaps a nod to the issue's potency among New York voters, who are predominantly Democratic or independent, no GOP senator spoke about the bills on the floor. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt for the New York Public News Network. Thank you, Karen, for that report. And thank you to New York Public News Network, Radio Catskills, part of that network, as well, thanks to the support of listeners like you. Right now, it's time for our weekly check-in with the Times Union's Hudson Valley Bureau. For that, we turn to uh, Managing Editor Philip Pantuso joining us live on the phone. Once again, Philip, thank you for returning to the show. Good to be with you, as always. So uh, I want to start off by getting your take and recap on a story that we've we've been following here for quite a while, which uh, is that a few weeks ago, Sullivan County District Attorney held a press conference in Monticello to go over the findings of a grand jury report. This is in connection with the Sullivan County uh, uh, toddler who died um, and a number of other issues. Can you can you give us a quick recap of what happened and bring us up to speed to where the story is now? Yeah, so um, this press conference was two weeks ago. Uh, Brian Canati uh, revealed the the findings of this 100-page investigative grand jury report. And the main takeaway really was that they had outlined six recommendations that together would instigate a pretty sweeping change in how the Department of Social Services works. Um, and as you kind of mentioned or alluded to, this was – this got kicked off after um, a 16-month-old died uh, last May of an apparent combined uh, drug overdose while staying with her family at night gym. And, um, you know, among the things that have been uh, recommended by or that were recommended by this grand jury report, which looked at, I think it was 18 individual CPS cases and talked to, you know, a couple dozen witnesses they recommended reinstating uh, the former uh, the former legal team that um, the county attorney had done away with during a restructuring a couple of years ago, um, creating an annual reporting process um, about how these uh, about how CPS cases were going and the quality of legal representation that the workers believed that they received. Um, and then rethinking how motels are used to house vulnerable populations. That one's, I think, directly related to the fact that the 16-month-old died uh, at an inn, at a night's inn in Liberty. Um, and, of course, Sullivan County and a lot of counties in upstate New York use uh, will, will rent up unused um, motel rooms to house um, vulnerable and unhoused populations, um, creating a county-owned drug treatment facility, and giving CPS the ability to drug test clients in-house, and also finally for the legislature to form a subcommittee to help uh, hospitals essentially make sure that um, mothers are drug tested when they're giving delivery um, in local hospitals. So, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a pretty sweeping um, set of recommendations um, and the DA said that the that legislative subcommittee to create um, a, a what would, what's called a double doctor override, um, which means that if two doctors basically agree, they can override a mother's refusal 
to um, be drug tested after delivery. Um, that should be the one priority and then the other, or well, one like immediate priority. Um, and then the other one should be reinstating uh, the in-house legal team there. Um, so yeah, that's kind of a recap of the findings. What, you know, there's been a lot of conversation I think that's come out after that press conference, mostly because um, while the parents of that child who died have been charged, uh, this grand jury report didn't lead to any additional charges. And, and those charges happened long before this report came out. Um, even though the, the DA says that the report essentially substantiates that uh, this death was preventable. And what he's talking about there is not that it was like preventable in some sort of global sense, like, you know, the parents could have done something different or better or, you know, the strategy didn't, didn't have to happen. But what he means specifically is that um, CPS should have prevented this death. Um, and there's been, you know, the, the county attorney uh, or former county attorney, sorry, Mike McGuire has kind of pushed back against that, um, saying that, so, so the DA, Gennady, has said that McGuire was responsible for keeping the 16-month-old in the home, despite CPS requests for her to be removed. Um, he had told the media back in May that uh, CPS didn't require his permission to remove children. And, and McGuire, the former county attorney, ha has also said uh, to you guys, that uh, there has never been a substantiated allegation of child abuse following a CPS investigation into this particular family. And so the county wouldn't have had a basis for removing the child. The DA basically says that's wrong, that he did have the power to remove the child after the legal restructuring. Um, and that, you know, he basically should have done it. So and I, I just want to pause there, just underscore what you're saying. This was a serious, uh, this was actually two conflicting stories at the time that this happened, uh, between the then acting DA Conady and the, at the time county attorney McGuire. These were almost, uh, uh, narratives of what happened and res where responsibility lie, uh, that were almost completely contradictory. Yeah, exactly. And that, that I think accounts for maybe some of the confusion coming out of this. Um, and, you know, I don't know if, if anyone, we, we certainly haven't yet able to get to the bottom exactly of, of whether this would have been permissible or not, what level of sort of danger threshold, you know, you have to cross. Um, but, you know, my sort of uh, take on this is it, it really seems like Kanadi is blaming uh, McGuire and his department for not doing more here. And of course, yeah. you know, McGuire just taking that personally. Yeah. So in, in your take, as you read this and you're saying, even now, uh, Kennedy's like, uh, uh, basically saying that this grand jury report backs up that claim is, does that, does that hold up? Does that view hold up in your, your view? Um, it's tough. Like, you know, it backs up the claim in as much as, there isn't enough to sort of charge him with anything. Um, that's a different bar, obviously, than whether than, than the sort of ethical question of whether he could have done more, which I think is what Kanadi uh, was has, has stressed in interviews and at that press conference a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, I'm not a legal expert. Um, 
I don't really, you know, I, I, I don't really know where all the lines are here. So to me, it's, it's kind of hard to say. I, you know, I don't, what I, what I will say is that this is definitely not the end of this story. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if these two keep taking shots at each other um, in the press and in public. Um, and certainly, you know, it seems like there's going to be some changes to, to DSS in the coming weeks and months. Yeah, and th- this is this report is coming out just as there's a newly composed legislature getting moving. So, like these these things are happening at the same time. There's this batch of recommendations of next steps to take, just as there's a fresh uh, body on the ground ready to take additional steps. So, it'll be interesting to see how quickly things move on some of these recommendations. Uh, one of those recommendations was to stop using. Um, local motels essentially for temporary housing, at least for the county to be taking a role in that. And I just wanted to point out to listeners that that also plays into, uh, as we saw last year, the, the story of housing migrants uh, from New York City. That may or may not become an issue again, but that really came to the fore into people's attention that that was going on so much because that was one of the things the county said. We got a housing crisis and we're housing these other people temporarily, you know, that this puts strain on it. So I just want to point out that that there's this story has implications in a number of directions. Yeah, it sure does. So, um Moving on to getting into uh, Hudson Hudson Valley, uh, I think. Well, well, first off, um, you want where do you want to start now? Is it do you want to talk about the cannabis story? Yeah, let's talk about cannabis because that that was a pretty big swerve that happened. Um, I guess yesterday, um, the cannabis control board was supposed to have its next regular meeting, its January meeting on uh, on Wednesday. It was. Um, and among their normal business, discussing uh, pending retail licenses, they were going to also talk about, um, like, cannabis research licenses and do a couple of other things. Um, they were going to discuss and potentially even approve uh, the home grow regulations. So that was, you know, exciting news to a lot of people. There's been, I think, a pretty widespread misperception that when New York passed the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act, that um, it was immediately effective that people could grow pot at home. Certainly a lot of people thought that. Um, but the, the provision in the, in the MRTA that approves home cultivation of cannabis specified that that could only take effect after the Office of Cannabis Management had issued regulations governing home cultivation of cannabis. So basically, uh, the, the, the law put forward a proposal. Uh, that, that proposal is something, I think it's like you can have six mature plants and six immature plants at once, up to five pounds uh, per person. But um, the regulatory framework had to be put in place. And like pretty much everything else in that bill, there was like a bunch of sort of suggestions about what that might look like, but the actual sort of nuts and bolts policy was punted, which is part of why it took so long uh, to roll out, to begin rolling out the actual um, policies in, or the actual, the actual uh, components of the bill, that and a bunch of lawsuits. Well, that, that is um, interesting because, as you said, many, many New Yorkers may not have understood this if – Going by what you're saying, I didn't understand this because I didn't know there needed to be more policy to that. It just sounded like pretty clear rules on what you can and can't do at home, and you figured that was the end of it. 
Yeah. And, you know, there's I think that what they want to hammer out basically is, well, for one, the, what's in the law is just a suggestion. So they actually have to codify that this five pound per person, you know, six mature, six immature plants is what they'll go with. Um, you know, I think they want to make sure that they're that people growing for home use are not also going to end up um I don't know, maybe leaking into a sort of gray market or what kind of effect that might have on the actual retail market if people are able to grow that much at home. So, and then there's, you know, there's things about how, about um, transport and and everything like that. That's for me to be hammered out. You know, there's, there's other provisions in the law that have since gone, that have, that have gone into place that would probably limit how much trouble you would get in if you were caught um, growing pot at home. Um, But nevertheless, this was supposed to be taken up and potentially approved at their regular meeting uh, yesterday, on Wednesday. And on Tuesday night, they abruptly canceled the meeting. And the reason for canceling the entire meeting that the Office of Cannabis Management gave or that the Cannabis Control Board gave was that um, uh, there was a... The, the, some of the licenses, the retail licenses that they wanted to review at the meeting um, were being, quote, held up by lawsuits from corporate interests, unquote. Um, Brendan Lyons, the Capitol Bureau chief for the Times Union, who, who wrote these stories and, and does a good job covering cannabis for us, he asked, I think, the question that most people have, which is like, okay, that's just one agenda item here among many that you're trying to take up, why not just strike that agenda item if um, there's some kind of legal question hanging over the retail licenses? They didn't clarify. Um, you know, he also pointed out that the lawsuits um, that have challenged some of the retail licenses mostly have not come from corporate interests. They've mostly come from special interest groups who are challenging certain provisions of the law. Most notably, um, there was one filed by four veterans, military veterans, who say that they have been discriminated against basically because they say that they should be part of this, you know, protected class of people who should get first, first access to the market alongside justice impacted folks um, and minority um, entrepreneurs and that they haven't been. So, you know, they just punted the whole meeting uh, in January and why the, the timing is kind of important, of course, because we're coming up to, the growing season, and if you know folks want to grow cannabis at home uh, this year, they would have been better for them to know if they could do that in January than having to wait until uh, potentially next month. So it's unclear if uh, they're going to hold uh, an emergency session to, to take this up, um, or if it will just wait until their next meeting. Do you happen to know where any of the agenda items have uh, in any relation to, is there an agenda item related to all of the illegal dispensaries, the non-licensed, uh, non-official dispensaries that, that are all over the state? I was shocked towards the end of last year to hear how many there were, like into the thousands. Um, to my knowledge, and I, I, you know, I will admit I have not tuned into every single cannabis control board meeting. They haven't taken that up, at least recently. That's, I think, more an issue for law enforcement. Um, you know, the the reason why why so many illegal and gray market dispensaries exist is because 
the rollout was so delayed um, that the timing of the kind of agricultural component of the of the retail cannabis market got out of line with you know the retail licenses and, and stores being able to open and so you get all of this product that was grown in you know 2021 and 2022 with the expectation that there would be you know 100 stores or something i think kathy hochel said that she wanted 100 stores to be open by the end of uh, i believe it was last year and I, I think we're at about 50 now um so uh that's that's part of the reason there's there's just so much product flowing through um and you know especially if you go down to to new york city uh there are quite a few um what's called them unlicensed and unregulated dispensaries operating yeah and, and i know it's not related to the initial story that you're talking about this but just under the heading of the cannabis control board and where things are in new york it seems that uh an unfortunate common thread through a number of these stories is the extent to which the state doesn't seem to fully be on top of this and or bureaucracy is the timetable of bureaucracy is not syncing up with the timetable of, for instance, growers, distributors, or the general public. Yeah, I and mean, the whole story of this is is one of, of bureaucracy. You know, I think New York tried to craft kind of the perfect law in the MRTA, and they did a really good job in in terms of like studying what has worked and what hasn't worked in other states that have legalized marijuana, but they put up so many different kinds of checkpoints and so many kind of like fail safe things you have to navigate that it's been, um, well, it's for one, there's so many avenues uh, for people to sue or, or to feel like they have been wronged in some way. And there's just so many boxes to tick that it's just, it's just happening so slowly. Yeah, kind of a, an impractical level of bureaucracy. But thank you for that update because I know there's been some frustration out there with the Cannabis Control Board. So it's good to have these updates on where they are and what's going on. Um, would you, would you, uh, do you want to talk about a flooding or a Nazi summer camp? Uh, let's, let's talk about, um, let's talk about the Nazi summer camp, actually. Um, I can keep, I can actually keep this one pretty brief. I think there's, um, a new PBS documentary that premiered on, I think it was on Tuesday, called Nazi Town USA that looks at the German-American Bund, which was a pro-Nazi organization that was uh, just what it sounds like, basically, German-Americans who were essentially trying to create an American wing of the Nazi party. And listeners may be familiar with the the event for which they're most famous, which was a big, uh, quote-unquote, pro-Americanism rally at Madison Square Garden in 1939, yeah. where, you know, the pictures from this are just, are just crazy. You know, there are 20,000 people there, a number of speakers. There's, like, a huge portrait of George Washington, and he's flanked by American flags and swastikas. Yeah. Um, that's uh, that is the image when you said you're familiar with the Madison Square Garden. I was just thinking like, yeah, giant George Washington and Nazi it is, propaganda. It's really yeah. chilling. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that I think has kind of been memory hold by, um, you know, by the subsequent events that you know led to World War II. I mean, World War II was like going at this point, but right. I think the full horror of what the Nazis were up to was not quite known. 
Um, but one of the other things that the German American Bund did was they operated a couple of dozen youth summer camps um, for for boys. Mostly, these are essentially just the American version of the of the uh, of like the Nazi youth, the Hitler youth camps. Yeah. Um, and one of them turns out was in Wyndham, right here in our coverage area. Um, like where people go skiing. <laughs> people go skiing. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's not, there's really very little known about this, this camp there. There's about a 25 minute documentary, um, called, uh, Volksdeutsche Jungen in USA. I don't speak German, but apparently that means German youth in the USA, which is now held in the national archives. You can watch it on YouTube. Um, and it, you know, it's images of this camp for children in Wyndham. It looks like any old, you know, summer camp. Like there's, there's marching, there's swimming. I guess you don't march in a camp, but you, you, you know, you run around, you swim, you play. Um, but it was, it was a Nazi summer camp. It's our Maria Silva did a really interesting historical feature about this for us that published over the weekend where she talked to the national art archivist and she talked to the Wyndham town historian, went back and looked at, at, um, some documents and some advertisements from that time. Nobody actually knows exactly where this camp was. It seems like it was probably only in existence for a couple of years, but she found that like, if you look at some advertisements for lodges and hotels in that era, and even going back to like the late ni- uh, the late 19th century, uh, there are quite a number of them that have, anti-Semitic language that just outright say like Jews not allowed or no Hebrews. Um, so she did a, she did an interesting feature basically about what we know and what we don't know about this camp. Wow. And that's, that's interesting to me to, to hear that what we don't know uh, is might be as interesting as what we, we do know. So that's, that's something to learn about. So thank, thank you for mentioning that. Uh, Philip, we got just a few minutes left. Uh, uh, what, anything else you'd like to talk about? Uh, yeah, I'll just, I guess, shout out one more quick story. You mentioned the flooding story earlier. Um, Roger Hennigan Gilson, who covers Columbia and Greene counties for us at the Times Union, had a really good piece of enterprise reporting that came out this morning about State Route 9G, uh, which is the main road coming off Rip and Winkle that goes into Hudson. It's, it floods a couple of times a year. It's flooded twice in the last month due to rainstorms and he found in talking to some uh to some climate scientists that uh if the if the hudson river rises even half as much as the dec is predicting it will by 2080 that road is going to be underwater uh, at high tide so (laughs) there that is a that's a big problem um there are culverts that run underneath the road right now but they get overwhelmed by the rainfall, which, you know, scientists have predicted was also only going to intensify. So that's going to cause, you know, a, a big issue if it's not taken care of at some point in the next, you know, decade or so, at least. It's already quite disruptive. Anytime there's a, a rainstorm of a couple of inches, you really can't get from, you really can't get into Hudson from, from, uh, from the West. Wow. So big issue. So is is a story just about bringing the issue to light, or is there anybody working on a potential solution? Well, you know, to take you behind the scenes a little bit, it, it was partly to bring it to light, 
and partly because um, the Department of Transportation, who, uh, who oversees the road because it's a state route, had told Roger initially that they were limited in what they could do um, to remediate the issue there and to, and to protect against it because of uh, protected marshlands around it. That's a, very, that's a pretty rural area. It's called the South Bay. Um, and, it, you know, it seems, like, it seems like they weren't even aware of the number of culverts or even if there were culverts there at all. Um, so it sounds like they're not really doing anything <laughs> about it at the moment. Um, you know, I'm hoping that now that this story is out, you know, Roger actually went and looked and I, I think the story shed some light on, on what's there and what, and what's not that was different than what the DOT was even telling him. Yeah. Hopefully that will spur some kind of action. Absolutely. And as you and I have talked about right here uh, on this program, I think a couple of times before that, that, you know, we're seeing more and more news that's related to climate change and the reality of those, uh, the reality of climate change coming home in some unexpected ways. So I think we're just going to be seeing some more of this as time moves on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so tempting to, I mean, we talked about this so much in the summer and fall. It's so tempting to think of it as a kind of like, you know, Western issue maybe, but I, I think we're starting to see that climate change is already here um, and it's already having effects. And the, the, the way it's going to affect us the most, I think, is is going to be these increased rainstorms, um, river rise, like, you know, all, all these coastal communities, all these um, riverfront towns are having to come up with, like, you know, 30-year plans to make sure they're not flooded. Yeah. Um, and just warming climate, you know, it's we less and less snowfall pretty much every year. Well, Philip, I want to thank you for taking the time to go over all of us, uh, all of this with us once again. You got it. Take care. And again, all the stories we've been talking about are up at timesunion.com. We check in with Man- managing editor of the Hudson Valley Bureau of the Times Union, Philip Antuso. Every Thursday, right here on the local edition. This is Radio Catskill Daily's up next. Thank you for spending time with us this evening.